everyone, it's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Hi, I'm Aryeh Borkov, and today we're joined by historian and commentary artist Neil Ferguson. He is the author of 16 books, including The Pity of War, The House of Rothschild, Empire, Civilization, and one of my favorites, Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist, which won the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Roth Prize. He's an award-winning filmmaker, too, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series, The Ascent of Money. His 2018 book, The Square and the Tower, which discusses networks and power, was a New York Times bestseller and also adopted for television by PBS as Neil Ferguson's Networld. His latest book, Doom, subtitled The Politics of Catastrophe, was published last year and shortlisted for the Lionel Gerber Prize. As far as his other day jobs, Neil is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and a Senior Faculty Fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. In 2020, he joined Bloomberg's opinion as a columnist. In addition, he is the founder and managing director of Greenmantle, LLC, a macroeconomic and geopolitical advisory firm a co-founder of Uala, a Latin American financial technology company, and a trustee of the New York Historical Society, the London-based Center for Policy Studies, and the newly founded University of Austin. Essentially, Neil's a curious, smart, and busy man, and I know I always learn something new when I sit down with him. So, Neil, thank you very much for joining us today. I texted with you over the weekend because of a different topic, but we're always debating back and forth about the topics of the day. But I wanted to start with you because of the profession of being a historian. I've pulled up from my favorite book of Churchill quotes what he refers to in history and the study of history. I'll read you a few of his quotes, and we'll get into where you fall out on this. He says, study history, study history. In history, lie all the secrets of statecraft. He also says, history unfolds itself by strange and unpredictable paths. We have little control over the future and none at all over the past. And then he says, everyone can recognize history when it happens. Everyone can recognize history after it happens. But only the wise man who knows at the moment what is vital and permanent, what is lasting and memorable. And then the last one, The farther backwards you can look, the farther forward you can see. That's Churchill. But Napoleon famously said, history is a set of lies that people have agreed upon. You're a student of history, and you have said you can't really be a historian without a philosophy of history. So I want to welcome you onto Kindred Cast, which is Lion Tree's podcast series for only the most important and insightful people in our kinship, in our friendship circle. But what is your philosophy of history? Neil. Well, first of all, Arya, it's great to be with you. Second of all, everything that Churchill said is right. And of course, Napoleon, thirdly, is wrong. Churchill's right in the sense that I don't think one can understand politics or economics 
without studying history. The idea that you could somehow understand the world with a theoretical framework without a great accumulation of cases, I think, is fundamentally flawed. Churchill's also right that history as it unfolds is unpredictable. There are no laws of history that can easily be discerned. And one must recognize that there's a great deal of chaos and contingency in the historical process. That's an important part of my philosophy. Churchill's right too that it's very difficult to know at the moment when an historic event is occurring. There was actually a nice paper that my friend Matt Connolly co-authored the other day in one of the science journals showing how bad the US State Department was at spotting historically significant events as opposed to unimportant events. And this is a noise signal problem. There is an enormous amount of noise in our lives. We call it news, but it should really be called the noise. Here is the noise. And most of the events that we've been told about are historically insignificant. It's really quite hard to spot the event that matters. And finally, and this is a really important part of my philosophy, Churchill is right that the further back you look, the further forward you can see. To understand how the futures may unfold, because there are multiple possible futures, you need some sense of the, the backstory. And the more you understand about the past, the better you get at pattern recognition, so that you get a sense of how things may unfold. You can't be certain because there are no laws of history and there's lots of chaos and contingency. But the more history you study, the better you get at pattern recognition and the better you also get at signal detection and noise cancellation. Pattern recognition, very true to what we do for a living in investing right. and advising as well. But let's talk about whether we might just be in the middle of a few events in the world today that may be making history. I say with a bit of a tongue in cheek because it seems that we are every minute of the day right. in a different moment. Let's start with Qatar and the World Cup because it is a global event. Often at times, media, sport bring together geopolitics and culture in ways that are unimaginable. And we're in the middle of this World Cup that is unprecedented because it's the first World Cup hosted in a Arab Muslim country and also unprecedented because I think Qatar and the state of Qatar spent about $250 billion in hosting the World Cup, which dwarfed the last Olympic event of that magnitude, which was hosted by China in 2008, which I think they were, they spent around $50 billion or maybe just under $50 billion. This is an event of a huge magnitude. So Qatar is trying to make an impression. Are they making an impression? What are they trying to accomplish here? And how do you think it's going so far? I guess if you think of this as a public relations exercise for Qatar as a state, it's not going that well. Because compared with, say, when Russia hosted the Olympics, there's much more public criticism of Qatar's human rights record than there was of Russia's. And that must be frustrating to the organizers of this World Cup because it feels a little bit like there's a double standard. But maybe it's because the Western world has become far more sensitive on a range of issues than it was about, say, Russian policy towards its near neighbors at the time of the last World Cup. I grew up in a football-loving part of the world in the west of Scotland, in Glasgow, one of the great football-addicted cities of the world. It is painful to me that Scotland once again failed to qualify for the World Cup, and all I can do is root for the teams playing against England. Happily, that included the United States. Unhappily, the result was a 0-0 draw, the most boring of all results. And because I'm a football addict, like nearly all male Glaswegians, I can't help but watch it. 
Even although I said to myself, oh, I'm not going to watch this. A, it's the wrong time of year for the World Cup. It should be in summer. B, it's in Qatar. They're not even serving beer at the games. It's just all baloney. But of course, as soon as the games began, I was drawn irresistibly towards watching them. And it's only by a massive effort of will that I'm having this conversation with you instead of watching yet another football game. And so the truth of the matter is that if you're a real addict, you very quickly forget where it's being played once the football begins. After a certain point, you begin to forget where the last World Cup was and the one before that. You don't even remember because the addiction just requires you to keep watching 22 men kicking a round ball. And it doesn't matter where they're doing it. You're going to watch. Well, but at the end of the day... You know, there is this life in the gray area and there are contradictions when you deal with global trends and global sports and global media that you do have human rights issues that obviously have been brought to the forefront. Obviously, a lot of people have died in the creation of this World Cup and the production of this World Cup. At the same time, it is highlighting the modernity push in the Gulf and this part of the world and the push to bring the world together through sport and through culture and through creativity. And as the games go on, as you mentioned, it looks like a great production and it looks like a great set of matches. So you do have this contradiction and there's been a bit of a balance of power and a balance of economic and maybe political power shifting into this region of the world in the Gulf. What do you think about that? Well, if you think about the region historically, it is an astonishing transformation that is underway not only in Qatar, but also in Saudi Arabia, there is a real change occurring, a change in the nature of economic and social life, a change in the status of women. It's not a facade that this is a very different gulf from the gulf that I study when I write volume two of Henry Kissinger's biography. The 1970s gulf was a radically different place. And so that's worth acknowledging. One can complain about aspects of life in Qatar or, for that matter, in Saudi Arabia. It's clearly not Denmark, but it's also a very different place from the Gulf of the 1970s. The thing that's striking to me is that we're in the midst of two great geopolitical shifts. One of them is away from the centrality of oil to the global economy. That hasn't yet happened, but it's in the process of happening. And so all of those countries in the region that depended on exploiting their hydrocarbons have to think about a future in which that is no longer a viable business model. The other great shift that's occurred, which in some ways is, to me, a more exciting one, is the relationship between the Arab world and Israel has changed profoundly in ways that, again, in the 1970s would have seemed unimaginable. Although the Trump administration gets a bad press these days, and indeed at the time got a bad press, the Abraham Accords were a major breakthrough. It was a fundamental transformation in Israel's relationship with its Arab neighbors. The Trump administration helped that happen, though I think the driving forces came from the United Arab Emirates and from Israel itself. And that's a huge change. It has left Iran isolated in a way that is very striking. And it suggests to me that at some point, and it may not be that far away, there is going to be a showdown between the Iranian regime and the Arabs. And that conflict is now a more important conflict than the Arab-Israeli conflict, which for years seemed to be the dominant fault line in the region. 
Yeah. The Abraham Accords has stuck. A lot of obviously administrations have policies that are here today, gone tomorrow as U.S. politics shift, which we'll get into. But this region in the Gulf and Israel has really become an alliance that has been economic and political in nature that has been cemented uh, beyond the Trump administration and has stuck. And obviously, in some ways, I've heard it described as the new Europe when it comes to economic relevance and power, whether it's oil or diversifying away from oil into other industries, and also the useful demographic of the countries you mentioned, the UAE and Saudi, Qatar and otherwise, in the region. And I think certainly a lot of people in the finance world have been over into these areas and media to look for collaborative efforts. That's right. And let's take another stab at this. If you and I had had this conversation 20 years ago, we would have been talking about the aftermath of 9-11. We would have been probably debating some of the neoconservative arguments of that time in favor of a reorientation of the greater Middle East using American military force to transform it. And it feels today in 2022 that those ideas have largely vanished from the scene. Not only is the neoconservative vision essentially consigned to the Ashkan, but the radical Islamist vision that motivated Al-Qaeda, motivated the 9-11 terrorists, has relocated. You're more likely to encounter it in sub-Saharan Africa these days than anywhere else. And so the world has changed in that respect too, that we no longer debate the clash of civilizations. We no longer obsess about terrorism. That's partly, I think, because of the failure of the neoconservative project, and I think it did decisively fail. But it's also because of the failure of Al-Qaeda's project. Both these enterprises ended in failure. Islamic State was a chimera. The Islamic State existed very briefly. It was a nightmare dystopian entity. It was quite easily destroyed. And importantly, as part of their modernization effort, the Arab states have broadly agreed to cut off the flow of funds to terrorist organizations. That's a very, very important shift that's happened. And it's one reason why the terrorist organizations have had to find easier pickings in places like sub-Saharan Africa. So in this respect too, I think it's important to acknowledge how big the change has been. We're having a very different conversation from the one we'd have had 20 years ago. Yes. And obviously we hope for momentum that continues on issues of women's rights and gay rights and all the things that are seemingly important to the Western world. But I think for the youthful demographic helped by technology and reach will hopefully follow suit. But I think you're right. It's led an openness to do business in those areas, but also to diversify away from being reliant on arms or other industries that are weapons oriented towards areas of economic development. But I want to get to globalization in general because we are seemingly moving away from an efficient marketplace that is a global marketplace or a global borderless society where we are headed to one that is now becoming more protectionist, where borders are being cemented, whether they're regional clusters, like we're talking about the Gulf, or they're talking about China being more insular. And obviously, that has effects of inequality and supply chains from an economic perspective, but has massive geopolitical implications. Are we reversing are globalization trends into a protectionist environment in your mind? Or is it is there somewhere where there's just a migration in between and is there's a resetting of sorts? Well, we historians used to talk about these issues a lot as globalization was nearing its peak, which I think was in around about 2007. And the conversation we used to have was like this. 
Well, the last time there was a lot of globalization, which was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, that ended pretty badly and was followed by a period of radical deglobalization culminating in the 1930s and 1940s. And so the worry we used to share was that it would all happen in a similar way and, and globalization would come to the kind of uh, shattering end that came in 1914. Thus far, we've avoided that. But we were certainly right as historians to expect some kind of a backlash against globalization. Because what happened in the late 19th century also happened in our time. You had rising flows of trade. You had rising flows of people, increasing migration relative to population. You had increasing flows of capital too across borders, as well as increasing flows of ideas of intellectual property across borders. There were all kinds of benefits to this integration of the global economy in our time as in the late 19th century, but there were costs as well. There were people who lost out. The mass migration that drove the foreign-born percentage of the US population to about 14% in the 1880s led to a nativist backlash, just as happened in our time. When I first came to the US, which was, I think, in 2002 to work, I looked around and I began to ask myself, where are all the protectionists? Because even then you could see that Chinese competition, since China's entry into the WTO, was kind of crushing a lot of manufacturing in the American heartland. It amazed me that it took as long as until 2016 for there to be a politically articulate backlash against globalization, because the seeds of it had been there for some time. So the backlash against globalization politically came in 2016, but there had already been an economic reaction against it in the form of the financial crisis. The financial crisis was a typical product of the over-integration of international financial markets. It was actually Chinese savings pouring into the US mortgage market that created that bubble in housing that ultimately precipitated the financial crisis. So globalization overshot not just politically, but it overshot in a way also economically. So we're now in a period where globalization is being dialed back, but it's being dialed back much more gently than happened when World War I broke out in 1914. It's not as if China and the US just stopped trading with one another. Actually, the trade between the US and China remains at a pretty high level, and that bilateral deficit remains pretty large. It's not that financial flows into China have stopped, they continue, but there's clearly been a decline in flows from China to the US. I think this trend will continue, Arie. I think that there will be less globalization five years from now than today, just as there's less globalization today than five years ago. But I don't think we're heading to the 1930s when basically globalization broke down and economies retreated behind tariff barriers to become more or less autarkic. We're going to dial globalization back, but we're not going to turn it off. I think that's the way I would think about this. That's fair, but can you live in a middle ground state of not globalization, efficiency, trusted partners, and also not a protectionist, you know, newly created supply chain environment, is living in the middle ground, living in the neutral zone, sort of like a China plus model, sustainable or is that too costly and does come with cemented borders and hardening borders? And where's the backlash come from? Is the backlash from the China-US relationship or is the backlash from immigration concerns or is it economic factors? Because ultimately there has to be a settling of what the global trade marketplace looks like and the political marketplace looks like. 
I think this kind of slightly less globalization world is just a more inflationary world because you lose some of the cost advantages that you gained when you brought Chinese labor and Chinese savings into the world economy. So it kind of tallies with the inflation problem that is also being generated in monetary and fiscal policy. It's hard to turn off the flows of labor. Just ask Britain. Part of the point of Brexit, which British voters opted for in 2016, was to take back control over, amongst other things, migration policy. But it's not as if Brexit has ended net migration into the UK. On the contrary, it's continued. It's just changed in its composition. So now the net migration into the UK is from outside Europe more than it's from inside the European Union. The US has largely restricted legal migration into its economy. It's got much harder to get all kinds of visas to work in the United States. But has the flow of labor into the United States stopped? No, it hasn't, because illegal immigration is booming with millions of people crossing the southern border illegally to enter the US. So it's hard to turn globalization off if there are powerful push and pull forces reallocating labor from unproductive poor countries to more productive rich countries. The critical variable, in my view, is ultimately geopolitical. What we're seeing is that Chimerica is essentially dead. That was the term I used back in 2007 to characterize the symbiotic relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. It's given way since 2007 to something more like Cold War II. And Cold War II means mutual suspicion. The United States, reluctant to become dependent on China, whether it's for pharmaceuticals or for crucial components in supply chains for manufacturing, and the Chinese increasingly suspicious of the United States with respect to its cultural exports. So these two countries have grown apart. It's too much to say they've decoupled, but they've certainly grown apart since 2007. And I think that trend will continue. Take just one example, the recent Commerce Department regulations designed to limit Chinese access to the most sophisticated semiconductors. That's economic war or economic sanctions against China by the United States. And we can imagine easily there being more restrictions on US investment in China in the months ahead as Congress turns its attention to what it's going to allow American companies to do in China. So I think that process of decoupling continues as long as we have something like a Cold War between Washington and Beijing. Yeah, you've noted before that you think the media has underestimated the Biden administration's hawkish approach to our relationship with China. How do you view the relationship with China now with this administration? They seemingly have lost power in China, whether it's through zero tolerance of COVID policy or otherwise, and the economy has slowed there. And obviously, the U.S. currency has become the dominant currency. So in a lot of ways, the U.S. has regained its stature as the world superpower, whether that was tactical or an accident. But how do you view whether China can regain its solid footing and whether the U.S.-China relationship is at a detente now with mutual suspicion, as you said, or China will be back on the rise at some point, or is it more paralyzed from a world geopolitical perspective for a while? Well, Aria, let me blow my own trumpet just a little bit. In my most recent book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, I ended by making two important predictions. The first was that China would not win COVID-19, that in fact, the zero COVID policy of preventing spread would ultimately backfire 
And the much more sloppy approach that the United States took would turn out, in fact, to be better. In addition, I said China won't come up with effective vaccines and the West will. And that was a bold call because it was before the phase three trial had finished for Pfizer and Moderna, but it turned out to be right. The other thing that I predicted was that there would be continuity from the Trump administration to any new administration. It was before we knew that Trump was going to be a one-term president because anti-China is one of the few bipartisan issues in the United States today. A really interesting thing happened in 2020, which wasn't widely noticed. And that was a decision by Joe Biden's handlers that he would be more hawkish on China than Donald Trump. Joe Biden had not been a China hawk as vice president in the least. You can find all kinds of photographs of him doing cheesy smile photo opportunities with Xi Jinping. But it was decided that the only way you could run against Trump in 2020 was to out-hawk him on China. And the Democrats got that right because the American public has become far more hostile to China in the last few years, and COVID only exacerbated that. I remember asking a red state senator to explain the shift in sentiment towards China in his state. And his answer was, it's simple, Neil. My people blame China for COVID. So there's been a big shift. It's become a bipartisan issue. The Democrats rightly saw that they could outflank Trump on this issue. And as a result, they've ended up being more hawkish on China in power than Trump was. They're more hawkish on Taiwan than Donald Trump ever was as president. In fact, if you read John Bolton's memoir, there's a funny moment when Trump picks up a Sharpie. He's sitting at his desk in the Oval Office and he said, you see this Sharpie? That's Taiwan. You see this desk? It's China. There's no way we're going to fight for a Sharpie that's thousands of miles away from the United States. Well, you would never hear that from anybody in the Biden administration. They've become far more committed to the defense of Taiwan. They've more or less ditched strategic ambiguity on that issue. So I think I was right in doom in foreseeing that things would go wrong for China, that there was a certain hubris in the way that Xi Jinping approached COVID. And I think I was right in seeing that the anti-China theme in American politics would continue regardless of who was president. You asked, where do we go from here? I think China is in deep, deep trouble. It's in deep trouble because as we speak, protests uh, larger than anything we've seen since 1989 are occurring all over the country. I think those protests will be crushed, just as Tiananmen Square protests were crushed in 1989. But they signal that the regime has a crisis on its hands, and it's a crisis of its own making, because the zero COVID policy should never have been continued for nearly three years in response to this pandemic. While it might have made sense in 2020, it only made sense as a temporary measure until you got your population vaccinated. The Chinese seem not to have understood that. And not only did they fail to create vaccines of their own that were effective, they failed to import effective vaccine from the West. If they were to open up now, at least a million elderly Chinese would die because they're either not vaccinated or vaccinated with vaccines that don't work. So they've boxed themselves in in a way that is really quite remarkable. And I think illustrates the dangers of centralized one-party regimes. Xi Jinping has too much power. When he makes a bad decision, then a fifth of humanity gets screwed. But even if they hadn't got COVID wrong, Arya, even if they'd somehow managed to make the right decisions, maybe just bought Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines, vaccinated the population, maybe if they'd done that and were able to reopen now, I think they'd still be in trouble for two reasons. One, the demographics are dreadful. It's plausible that the population of China could shrink by half between now and the end of this century. That is a plausible forecast from the United Nations population prospects, assuming that fertility does not increase. 
It's not their base case, but it is a plausible outcome if their fertility remains at its current level, which I think it may. That the population of China could shrink in half? Yes. That is the extreme case, the outlier case, assuming no increase in fertility. The UN population projections offer all kinds of different scenarios, but there isn't a scenario in which population doesn't decline in China, whereas there's a scenario in which it goes up in the United States. China's population will decline between now and 2100. The only question is by how much. Base case is it's something like a third, but extreme case it's 50%. So we've reached 8 billion people in the world just temporarily, you think? We're going to go backwards. Population of the world will peak. The growth from the rest of this century is only in Africa. 95% of the increase in global population between now and the end of the century will be in Africa. Everywhere else, population is declining, and it is declining most rapidly from now in China. That's point one. Point two, the debt dynamics of the Chinese economy are abysmal. A very important part, maybe around 29% of China's GDP, is accounted for by real estate development. That process has run out of road. They are literally building tower blocks for nobody in the tier three cities, as my good friend Ken Rogoff showed in a recent paper. There's just no way that these investments make any economic sense given the demographic dynamics. And so China's economy is bound to slow down, much as Japan's did after its great 1980s boom. And I think the slowdown for China comes at a much lower level of per capita GDP. So even without the problems of COVID, China would be in trouble demographically and in terms of its debt dynamics. And that's why I'm broadly bullish about Cold War II. I think the US is well-placed to win it as long as we don't make unforced errors, which we may. Correct. Our charm is in our dysfunctionality, but then we self-correct. Well, it's because we have a decentralized system in which not too much power is vested in too few hands for too long. Ultimately, it's a mess, and we can spend the rest of this podcast talking about how big a mess it is. But mess is actually preferable to centralized control, because centralized control is bound at some point to make a really major mistake, whereas mess just can't make that many big mistakes. We do self-correct, we can throw the bums out, and for all its flaws, that system of decentralized democracy is the best that anybody's come up with. This was Churchill's other great line, democracy, the worst of all political systems, apart from all the others that we've tried from time to time. Correct. I want to get to the U.S. state of play and the political environment, but before I leave global politics, when economies contract, tensions rise, not that this is the sole reason for the military situation we find the Russia-Ukraine conflict in right now, but you've said that we potentially could face three potential military conflicts in the 2023 to 2024 timeframe when you look at Iran, China, and Russia, or China meaning with Taiwan. How do you view the unique risks of these military conflicts arising? And on the flip side of things, optimistically, are the walls closing in on Russia with respect to the Ukraine-Russia conflict potentially even coming to an end, given the Ukraine being surprisingly stalwart here. One of the things about Cold Wars is that they have hot war subplots. You don't necessarily get to World War III between the superpowers, but there are lots of proxy wars going on that are pretty hot. In Cold War I, for example, in 1950, a major war broke out in Korea. I think of the war in Ukraine as being our equivalent of the Korean War, the first hot war of Cold War II. 
And it's superficially a war about Ukraine's right of self-determination. It's superficially about Ukraine's right to be Western-orientated, to be democratic, not to be a Russian colony. But it's also a proxy war in which the US and its allies pour arms and dollars into Ukraine to inflict the maximum possible damage on the Russian army. In the same way, Russia is playing a proxy role for China. China is Russia's biggest trading partner. China is buying the oil that the Russians can no longer sell elsewhere. And although China's not providing arms to Russia, it's keeping Russia's economy going, if only by buying its hydrocarbons. Now, if you think about world wars and cold wars, they are multi-theater operations. You may be focusing on Ukraine right now because that's where the hot war is. But don't forget that a hot war could break out imminently in the Middle East, where Iran, as we mentioned earlier, is isolated, is aggressive, has every reason to want to fight with the Saudis and others, not least because it would help them cover up the massive repression that they're about to undertake against their domestic population. So I think Iran no longer really sees the nuclear deal as worthy of resuscitation, its regime is radical, is going to pursue its nuclear arms program, and Israel and its new Arab friends are not going to let Iran become a nuclear armed power. That conflict can flare up very imminently because Iran is not that far away from nuclear capability. Finally, there's a third zone of conflict that I think can flare up quite soon, and that's Taiwan, where the US no longer is ambiguous in its commitment, and Xi Jinping is very clearly determined to bring the island under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. That is the Cold War II equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis waiting to happen. Except this time, the island is just off the shore of the other superpower. It's not off our shores, as Cuba was. It's off China's shores. And this time, if there is going to be a showdown, we'll be the ones with the very extended lines of communication, and it may well be the Chinese that are imposing the blockade. So I worry a lot about that scenario, because the Cuban Missile Crisis was the most dangerous moment of the 20th century. It was the moment when World War III nearly happened, when nuclear weapons could have been used in a conflict between the superpowers that could have escalated to an absolutely catastrophic level. We should never rerun that game. And yet we seem intent on doing so. We seem intent on having a showdown over Taiwan, which is economically a much more important island than Cuba ever was, because 92% of the sophisticated semiconductors, the top semiconductors, get manufactured in Taiwan. A war over Taiwan is an economic disaster waiting to happen. So imagine Cold War II having not just one flashpoint in Eastern Europe, but three, one in Eastern Europe, one in, in the Middle East, and one in the Far East. And you see how dangerous the next few years could become. And I see nothing in the US today or in China that reduces the probability of a showdown over Taiwan at some point this decade. On both sides, it seems to me, positions are hardening and the level of armaments is going up. But don't you think this time around, we're more prepared for it, whether it's the US or NATO, that if there is a flare of nuclear activity, as bad as that sounds, as tragic as that would be, that the ability to combat that and the ability to squash that very quickly would be prepared for at this day and age? And related to that, how does the end game play out for Putin here? Well, we are not as well prepared to deal with the Taiwan Strait crisis as we were in the 1990s when we credibly could threaten 
China and China had to back down. China is far better armed today than it was in the 1990s. And it has missiles capable of sinking US aircraft carriers. Any conflict over Taiwan would escalate very rapidly for that reason. In the case of Ukraine, it's already obvious that the United States has forgotten basic deterrence theory. It's as if the Cold War didn't happen. Maybe Jake Sullivan missed that class when he was at Yale Law School. Oh, come to think of it, they don't do the Cuban Missile Crisis at Yale Law School. But at any event, we've made a series of very obvious mistakes since the conflict in Ukraine began, showing that we were genuinely worried that Vladimir Putin would use a nuclear weapon in this war. It was one reason that we took supplying jets to Ukraine off the table, because he rattled his nuclear saber early on in the conflict. And he rattles it every time things are going badly, and we're kind of intimidated. It's the reason that we're not supplying the Ukrainians with enough weaponry to win the war. We're giving them enough not to lose. But just to be clear, the Ukrainians are winning in the battlefield. They are not winning economically. Russia's economy declined maybe 3.5% this year, but Ukraine's contracted by 10 times that, an order of magnitude more. Even before the Russians started to attack their critical infrastructure, the Ukrainian economy was minus 30% in terms of GDP. So I don't think Ukraine can sustain the kind of uh, fighting that we've seen in recent months very far into next year. Whereas Russia, which is economically in a much stronger position, is capable of mustering reinforcements and deploying them into the battlefield next year. It's not in Ukraine's interest for this war to drag on, I don't think. It's not in the Ukraine's interest no. for the war to drag on, but I would argue not in Russia's interest either. Not to say that, that Putin won't act irrationally, but is your bet and view that it would come to some sort of detente because both recognize that it's a lose-lose situation or is it going to go on in perpetuity? Well, wars are very hard to stop once they've been going for six months. That's the clear record of history. Either wars are quite short, measurable in days or weeks. Think of the short war of 1973. That war was like 19 days long. This war has dragged on so long that it's got really hard to stop now. I think the US will try next year to bring the war to a conclusion at some point when we deem that the Ukrainians can do no more. We're quite happy to back them all the way through this winter as long as they're gaining territory. But at some point, we're going to have to call a halt because, as I said, the fundamental constellation of forces does not favor Ukraine. The key question in my mind is, what on earth would a peace deal look like? I don't see what Volodymyr Zelensky would be able to sell to his own people in the way of a compromise. Right now, the Ukrainian position is we want it all back, not just the stuff the Russians took since February 22nd. We want to take everything back, including the stuff they took in 2014. That includes Crimea as well as all of the Donbass. That's their position. The Russian position, meanwhile, is equally inflexible. The Ukrainians say they'll negotiate, only not with President Putin. Breaking news, he's not going anywhere. So I'm not sure just how this peace gets done, even if that's what the United States decides at some point in the next few months that it wants. And the evidence in the historical record is that a war like this can drag on and on. I mentioned Korea earlier. Well, it dragged on until 1953, three years. And I could imagine this war dragging on, even if the level 
or intensity of the war has to be brought down because the two sides cannot sustain the casualties that they're currently sustaining. It's been a very bloody war, Arie. I guess between a quarter and a third of the initial Russian invasion force is dead now. And the casualties on the Ukrainian side have been comparably high. Really, really, really bloody conflict. And so it's hard to sustain that because you just start to run out of trained soldiers, as well as, of course, to run out of artillery. The Russians can't sustain this bombardment much longer, there is ultimately some finite limit to the number of missiles they can fire. So I think the war will continue, but at a lower level of intensity next year, and it will prove extremely difficult to find a basis for peace. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the U.S. stature in the world has strengthened and increased in importance through this war, given the fact that Ukraine has relied on the U.S. as a pillar of strength. And the U.S. positioning has improved while China has weakened and the U.S. superpower status has been solidified. The question is, with the changes in the political landscape in the U.S., whether that brings on a new approach. And I want to bring you into the U.S. political sphere. You have said that the only thing more terrifying than political division in America is a bipartisan consensus. <laughs> Where do you feel that we land on that spectrum post the midterms, given the fact that it was less vitriolic, I would say, than people may have expected, and certainly less of a red wave, as they say, and a split to Congress now. But what do you think about U.S. politics as we look towards 2024? Well, the bipartisan consensus is on foreign policy. You can sit Bob Menendez down with Lindsey Graham and you will struggle to tell which is the Democrat and which is the Republican if they're talking about foreign policy. And that means that it doesn't matter which party's dominant in Congress, the tendency will be for hawkish policy to be favoured towards Russia and towards China in particular. On other issues, on domestic issues, of course, there really is no such bipartisan consensus. In fact, there's division on pretty much any issue that you care to mention. What was significant about the midterms was that they went against the grain of historical experience. The Republicans should have done much better, particularly with inflation up to levels we haven't seen since 1982. And the question becomes, why did they underperform? Why did they fail to take the Senate and only barely take the House? And I think the answer to that is partly candidate quality, and that's partly, indeed, largely the fault of Donald Trump, whose interventions in the primaries, broadly speaking, advanced the causes of bad candidates. But there's something else going on, which I think can only really be explained in a more structural way. The Republicans, I think, thought that they'd made major breakthroughs with Hispanic voters, with suburban female voters, and they did if one just looks at the national figures. But the national figures turned out to be a relatively poor guide to how many congressional districts would flip. So one way of thinking about American politics today is that it's no longer really the familiar politics that we grew up with. We're old enough to remember landslide victories at presidential elections, pretty low turnout in midterms, and quite big changes. Particularly, the typical pattern was that a president would get elected, but then two years later, no matter how popular he had been when he got elected, his house would do badly in the midterms. That was the pattern. So I think we have to realize that those days are gone. 
and American politics has reverted to a kind of 19th century pattern where gerrymandering and machine politics are the dominant determinants of outcomes, where turnout in midterms is quite high because the political machines are pretty good. And that means that there aren't the great wave elections that we used to be familiar with. We don't get landslides in presidential elections, they're very tight, and we don't get waves in midterm elections. It's back to the 19th century, not only in terms of results, but also in terms of the tone of politics. American politics is very nasty, right? People are always complaining about how mean it is. Well, it was mean in the 19th century. If you don't believe me, read Charles Dickens's account of his visit to the United States. He was appalled by the incredible nastiness of American politics compared with the gentlemanly ethos of the Houses of Parliament. So we're kind of back in a 19th century world where it's a nasty, rather corrupt, machine-driven political game, and not many states determine the outcome of a presidential election, and not many districts determine the outcome of a congressional election, because most states and most districts are pretty much under the control of one or other of the parties. Well, it's probably early to call, and 2024, though, is around the corner with people throwing their hat into the ring, maybe earlier than uh, historical standards with uh, Trump throwing his hat in the ring for the uh, presidential election. You've also said before that Governor DeSantis reminds you of Ronald Reagan's angry younger brother. Maybe now he seems more calm relative to Trump these days. And then you have others with a deep bench on the Republican side between Pompeo and Nikki Haley and others who have not yet thrown their hat in the ring, but we'll see what happens. How do you think it's all going to play out leading into 2024? Well, I probably have as good a chance of getting this right as of predicting who'll win the World Cup, uh, but here goes. My sense is that Donald Trump lacks the energy and novelty factor that carried him to victory in 2016. I watched his announcement speech and a moment of telepathy occurred where one of my colleagues at Greenmantle sent me a message saying, you're thinking low energy, aren't you? And I said, that's exactly what I'm thinking. It was a low energy launch compared with his launch back in 2015. And I don't think that the country is there in sufficient numbers for him to do what only only one previous person has done, that is to get a second non-consecutive term as US president. Only Grover Cleveland ever achieved that. I don't think Donald Trump can do it. And I think his unfavorables are just too overwhelmingly to his disadvantage. He's an, an, a liability to the Republican Party. That must be clear by now to almost every key figure in the Republican establishment. And their challenge is how to get him off the stage. I think he'll go to the primaries. I think he'll underperform. And I think I think what will happen is that a vital moment, just as the Democrats did back in 2020, a bunch of candidates will pull out and get in behind Ron DeSantis. That's how Joe Biden got over the line, remember? A bunch of the candidates just suddenly turned around and said, you know what, we're out, we're going to back Biden. That's going to have to happen. That's going to have to happen in 2024 to stop Trump, to make sure that Trump doesn't make it. In 2016, the Republican establishment had a theory of the case, which was this guy's a maverick. You know, one of our guys will take him out, whether it's Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, somebody's going to beat him. And it just didn't happen. He just kept winning and winning the primaries. This time, they're going to box more smartly and make sure that Trump cannot lock down the nomination. That's my guess. DeSantis, I think it was at your conference area that I first admitted that I had a man crush on Ron DeSantis. I'd heard him speak quite recently before then 
I think the phrase I used was it was as if Ronald Reagan had a mean little brother we didn't know about. He has not only the name Ron going for him, but also a kind of toughness, coherence, precision to his delivery that reminds me of Reagan, but without Reagan's bonhomie. Reagan had this warmth and likability that Ron DeSantis has got to learn to project. Because right now, he seems all mean streak when he's delivering his stump speech. And the other thing that Ron DeSantis has to do to be a presidential candidate is develop some kind of a story on national security and foreign policy issues. Ronald Reagan did that as governor of California mainly by attacking Henry Kissinger on détente. And it was that which established Reagan as the conservative on foreign policy. Ron DeSantis has got a fantastic set of talking points on domestic issues. He's got all those issues from COVID restrictions to wokeism and education. He's got those down. But what's the story on US foreign policy? That we still don't know. And until he's got that figured out, he's still not ready, I think, for prime time. You did call that very early, probably some nine months ago at the conference on DeSantis. But I want to talk about leadership for a minute here because you obviously are writing volume two of your Kissinger biography. I think he's approaching or is 99 years old now. He famously won a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating a ceasefire in Vietnam in 1973. It feels today that there is a lack of leadership in all circles. We're talking about politicians, business leaders, and let's say influencers in today's day and age as well. Who's leading whom among those three factions? And is there a way to overcome the level of distrust we have in today's society for leaders to really truly emerge? And where do you think they're going to come from? From the political circles, from the business circles, or maybe from the creator economy even? Well, Kissinger's most recent book, and at 99, he's still cranking them out, is on leadership. And it's worth reading. It's six portraits of leaders that he knew personally, from Adenauer to Sadat, by way of Thatcher and de Gaulle, Lee Kuan Yew. One of the things that these leaders had in common was the searing influence on them of World War II. We began with Churchill. Let's not forget the extent to which the great leaders that we think back to were in a way products of a very exceptional time, the, the time of the world wars, which of course propelled Churchill ultimately to the premiership in the United Kingdom. It's harder to become a leader like that today. We have been tested less, far less. Our generation has faced far less daunting challenges. And there's been a strange fusion between the work of politics and the work of entertainment. And so we now have leaders who are in some measure entertainers in order to become elected. And that's a very different set of qualities from the ones the Churchill generation had. Let's take the case of the world's currently most impressive leader, the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. If he's not man of the year, it's sort of a travesty because he's personified Ukraine's spirit of resistance and has been a tremendously inspiring leader to that nation. But he started out as an entertainer. He had only just become president when I first met him, and he was still obviously a showbiz guy to the extent that when I first met him in 2019, after dinner, he and some of the former cast members of his sitcom put on a cabaret after dinner. Zelensky, as I first knew him, was an almost clownish figure, certainly intelligent, but not really taking the job too seriously. It was almost as if he couldn't quite believe that he'd gone from the sitcom to reality. 
the war has transformed him into a truly heroic figure. But is he playing the part of a heroic war leader? That's the question I keep asking myself. How far is he really strategically leading Ukraine towards victory as opposed towards destruction? That There's a way in which the story ends really badly that we shouldn't lose sight of for the reasons I gave earlier. So I think we have a problem in that leadership has become a branch of entertainment. The other problem that we have is followership. And this was a point I made to Kissinger when I read his book. We are much less inclined to follow than our grandparents and great-grandparents. That is because we have been empowered, not just by technology, but by the spread of education. The world is literate as it never was before, connected as it never was before. Everybody feels entitled to his or her own opinion, often multiple opinions, not all of them consistent with one another. We are not an easy bunch to lead. And that may be the big difference. What is your definition of a true leader? Obviously, people will have to follow a true leader, but a true leader has to emerge first without any kind of natural guarantee of that. Is there anyone that stands out to you in any of the communities that you traffic in that is a leader today, aside from the ones we talked about that, like Zelensky, with the juries, I don't know how the story ends, or DeSantis, the biggest challenge is still in front of him. You've worked with some of the biggest and most important leaders of our generation and written about those of the prior generations. Anyone stand out today that fits your definition of a true leader? Well, my definition is the ability to get a people or a workforce, for that matter, uh, from where they are to some future destination that the leader can visualize despite the costs of the journey, because the leader persuades those following him or her, it's worth it. This destination is attainable and the price that we pay on the journey will be worth paying. That's the the essence of leadership. Because it's not difficult to lead people somewhere they want to go. There's a great line about the 1848 revolution. One of the revolutionaries in Paris was named Ledru Rollin, and the revolutionary crowd went hurtling down some Parisian street, and Ledru Rollin was heard to shout, I am their leader. I must follow them. That's the 19th century version of our modern style of leadership, where you look at the opinion polls before you make a decision, and your decision-making is essentially a function of the polls and the focus groups. So leadership, in my sense, is quite different. In leadership, you have a vision of some attainable future that isn't universally shared. You have to convince people, and then you have to persuade them that it's worth paying a price to attain that goal. There are very few people out there doing that. Now, there's an interesting case that we talk about almost as much as we used to talk about Donald Trump, and that is Elon Musk. Now, Elon Musk is like the Chinggis Khan of our time charismatic leader who leads in a way that is unpredictable, erratic, but yet fascinating. This is what Max Weber called charismatic leadership. There are people who would invest in Elon, even if he established a biological weapons company, they would give him the money. No matter how crazy the idea might seem, Elon has his followers. And in a way, that kind of charismatic leadership may be appropriate to our time. In the age of social media, it's perhaps appropriate that he should end up owning Twitter. He's the meme lord. And that is a very distinctive kind of leadership, but it's a very dangerous kind of leadership. It can produce brilliant and extraordinary innovations. It can realize visions from electric cars to the most efficient space company in the world. But 
who knows where the mercurial figure will lead us next. Weber's point in his writing on leadership was that over time we prefer bureaucratic, rational decision-making to charismatic leadership, because charismatic leadership can go so wrong. There are very few leaders out there who would meet Weber's criteria of rational, orderly leadership. I'm going to throw out one name that strikes me as a good illustration of effective leadership in our time, of a Weberian sort, and that's Jamie Dimon, whose leadership of J.P. Morgan strikes me with every passing year as more and more impressive. That is an organization that has withstood all kinds of challenges, not least the financial crisis, but also the challenge of changing technology. And yet J.P. Morgan remains the dominant player in the dominant economy economy, the dominant financial institution in the world. That has to be down to some large degree to his leadership. So I'll give you those two versions of leadership. The mercurial charismatic Genghis Khan version, which is Elon Musk, and the rational and bureaucratic form of leadership that is Jamie Dimon. If you had to choose which leader to follow, I can see how much more exciting it would be to follow Elon, but the rational actor would probably prefer to follow Jamie. Very well said. And I would hope that morality and a compass and a framework would fit in there as well. And I started by asking about your framework and philosophy of history and of being a historian. And I want to end by talking about the square and the tower, because that book, which I really enjoyed reading a few years ago when you wrote it, really encapsulates our time because you basically say that the towers of power are overstated in today's environment of social networks which is really the square, which is exacerbated by technology and the reach that technology allows for. And that connectivity that the people now enjoy around the world that has blurred borders and increased democratization and so on, you would think would improve our togetherness and our oneness, but in reality has increased divisiveness, much like in the times of uh, Buber, which you talked about as well. That also comes with a heightened degree of responsibility when you have these social media networks and the age of the creator economy. And we've now have creators that are prone to hate speech in addition to creativity and all kinds of great product enhancements and so on. It's becoming more and more alarming that the technology reach and this square does have this level of vitriol and the rise of anti-Semitism and the renewed issues of civil rights and inequality and so on that now are at the forefront. So can you talk to us about the square and the tower and where the balance of power shifts and how you reconcile the beauty of connectivity with the rise of divisiveness? Well, this is where I think being a historian helps. I was trying to make sense of a world in which there seemed to be a tension between hierarchical structures, towers, and networks, horizontal, distributed, decentralized, and informal networks, the square. And I realized that the best analogy for our time is not the 20th century or the 19th century. You have to go all the way back to the time when the printing press was introduced in the late 15th century in Europe, spread rapidly in the course of the 16th century. And that was the technology that made possible the Reformation. What was the Reformation? A challenge to the tower of the Roman Catholic Church in Western Christendom, a fundamental challenge to that hierarchical structure from the Pope down to the lowliest priest. 
Now, when the printing press was first made available in Western Europe, it seemed like an obviously good thing. How awesome. Now we can easily reproduce written texts, and when everybody can read, then they'll be able to read them for themselves. What could possibly go wrong? Well, it was a little bit the same with the internet. Because it's only, I guess, 10 years ago that most people uncritically assumed that everything would be awesome if everybody was connected, if everybody was a netizen, had their own blog, was on their social platform, that that would be great because we'd all be connected. Well, the same problem has arisen. If you create large networks, if you lower the costs of communication and connect people on an unprecedented scale, then what happens is that you reveal the tendency of social networks to polarize. It is entirely typical for a networker on any scale to self-select homophily. We're drawn to people who are like us. Birds of a feather flock together. So in the enlarged network, we gravitate towards like-minded people. There's also the phenomenon that as the network grows, there are attractions on the extremes because, hey, it's just more exciting. Why be an ordinary Lutheran when you could be an Anabaptist and really be out there? So this other tendency, which is, I think, very obvious in our time, is for large networks to create a kind of radicalization dynamic. That's why, as in the 16th and 17th century, our networked age has not produced an everything-is-awesome kumbaya moment of global togetherness, but instead has produced the culture war, the atmosphere of polarization. You used the term hate speech. I don't like that term because it's really just 21st century for blasphemy or heresy. But as in the 17th century, even if we don't literally burn people at the stake, metaphorically, we do like to take the heretics, those guilty of hate speech, and cancel them in a kind of ritualized way. So to an extent that is startling, we're reenacting the religious wars of the 16th and 17th century in Europe, but on a global scale, and not just in terms of religion, but more broadly in terms of culture. Where does this end? Well, that is a very, very difficult question to answer, because these horizontal networks have a tendency to restructure themselves as new towers. It's amazing how quickly the internet got centralized and produced these enormous corporations, Google, Apple, and the others, which now very much structure our experience on the internet. And that may just be the way history works. You start with a creative decentralized network and you end up pretty quickly with a new hierarchy. I think my bottom line is that we have two different kinds of hierarchical order to choose between. In China, the tower of the Chinese Communist Party controls the square. The internet in China has become part of a surveillance state. And that is a chilling, dystopian world. A world where people can be locked in their apartments indefinitely, even be allowed to burn to death because of the application of COVID restrictions. That is one future, and it already exists for a fifth of humanity. The other future is one in which the established tower of government doesn't really control the square, that there are concentrations of power in the square, like the big corporations, but broadly speaking, it's still a relatively decentralized world. The problem is, it's a hellscape. It's a hellscape, our free society, in which hate speech can't be prevented, in which free speech means hate speech, and we all just have to deal with it. And I think if I had to choose between Xi Jinping's panopticon, in which the party controls my life, like in Orwell's 1984, and a kind of hellscape in which all kinds of crazy, batshit, blasphemous ideas are freely available, I'll choose the hellscape. The middle ground is in a decentralized world, leaders 
with the right framework emerge with communities that can move towards structures that do stand for something with a framework for a just progressive society. I think it's more likely that those happy mediums occur in proximity to the hellscape than in proximity to the Chinese panopticon. So I think in order to get those happy medium, happy middle ground communities to work, you have to tolerate a kind of hellscape on the periphery. Because without freedom, we can't really have innovation and we can't progress. The price of freedom is blasphemy or hate speech, and we just all have to figure out how best to screen it out because I think we can't ban it. We have to learn how to filter out that which we do not want to hear, and we have to do it ourselves. We shouldn't expect the government to police the hellscape. We have the ability to shut out the noise. I'm not too bad at doing that now, but that's the only way, I think, to remain sane in the hellscape and to build those communities that you're talking about. Let's go for it. Let's have this period in search of new leaders and industrialists and visionaries that take us through these times into a brighter, progressive future in a decentralized world and not rely only on governments to solve it for us. Amen. Amen. Neil, thank you so much for this. This has been so informative and such a pleasure and honor to have you. And I look forward to more reading and more learning and more history being formed uh, real time. Thanks very much, Ari. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.